I think 2012, somewhere in there, I stepped away from teaching at UD to, um, oh, <coughs> not behind, ahead. Um, <laughs> here, I'll get it done. Um, to write, because I, um, the woman who's my dissertation director is Louise Cowan, I think, and you know her. Um, was encouraging me to contribute an article to a book that she was um, putting together on poetry and and I, I never found the time to write when I was teaching it just if you're correcting papers all the time and at UD the, the writing load is horrendous um, but anyway I stepped away to devote my time to writing and we're parishioners at St. Francis half our heart is here truly I wish I mean, it's the limitations of our body. If we could be here more, we would, because it would be good to see you guys here um, at the parish. But um, a young man who is, I think, Bishop Barron's secretary. Um, some of you may know him, Jared um, Zimmerman. Um, wanted to start up a class. He was head of the um, adult catechesis program. And he wanted to start up a class in literature because he believed that literature is really important. I mean, obviously, for those of you who've been here, you know that I do too. Because I think literature is the most direct way, not only into the human soul, into our interiors, but everything outside. So, more than any other field of, more than any other discipline, literature is the one in which we have the fullest contact with who we are inside and outside. That relationship between, whether it's Achilles in the Odyssey, or a Shakespeare heroine, or somebody in Faulkner, it doesn't matter. So it's just a rich, rich field, and it seems to me one of the, one of the values it has is it helps us to know ourselves and it helps us to know each other just much better. Um, Jared wanted to put this class together because he believed in the importance of literature and he wanted to call it classical literature. That was a death seal for me, and I, I just, literature is too important for me. When you put the word classic on it, it dies. I, so I went to talk with him. Um, we were like-minded in so many ways. Um, both of us knew that Barron, Bishop Barron, was rich in literature. John Paul's background was in literature. Um, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, um, two of the greatest writers in the 20th century, both did literature, and I'm missing somebody here. Um, but anyway, some of, the, some of the most influential apologists of Christianity had their background in literature, and I don't think that's an accident because you get to know, we, we get to know ourselves in our depths more clearly. And for those of you who have been here, you know that that can be dangerous because it means so often looking at things in ourselves we don't want to see. That's, that's why I call it prophetic, and I make a clear distinction. This is not prophecy. It's, it's not prophecy. Um, there's, there's a difference, but there's a prophetic element to literature that I don't want to miss that I think most approaches to literature today don't get to. Most approaches are feminist, Marxist, Freudian. They're going to reduce it to an ideology, and it's one actually it's one of the reasons I wanted to write because I'm so upset with what people are doing with literature today. But anyway, Jared said, "You take over the course." He was teaching Melville, and I happen to believe um, it's where those of you who were you know who were online in the work that we were doing. The next work we were going to do after Shakespeare was going to be Melville's Moby Dick. Um, I happen to believe that work is prophetic. 
in it, it just unmasked something disordered in America in an, in an amazing way. Um, so, um, because I think it's one of our greatest works, I, I had that on my mind when I went to Jared and he said, you teach the course. So, wow. So, um, so I took it over and named the course Literature's Prophecy to find Christ where ordinarily we, you know, and that started. Father Flynn was there at the time and he left. Um, I, I so enjoy Father Flynn a lot, a lot. And um, he made an opening here. So um, really because of him and my attachment to him and because we both, we both care deeply about education. I think both of us share the same concern and let me just get it out in front right now. I think our, our faith is in trouble because of a failure in education. And I'm saying that sort of starkly. So um, both of us had that concern and he was glad to have me here and I started up this course as you all know. I c cannot believe it was four years ago. but Anyway, um, it's been wonderful and I'm sort of amazed that some of you are still around but you are. Um, what happened in this last year at Francis is we were approaching our end. We've been together for seven years. Um, just stunning to me. Um, takes my breath away. Seven years is like a discipleship. You know, you don't, you don't take something on and stay with it. I can't say enough about it. The foolishness of this group right here. Um, anyway, um, we started it up. Where's I going? Um, and um, you started with the classics. I know well, you're not supposed no, to use that we, word. Well, we didn't actually. We started with Shakespeare. What we did was start with Shakespeare because I wanted to start. This is not going to make sense to a lot of you, but I wanted to start with where we are. And so we started with Shakespeare's two. Uh, Venetian regimes. Lots of you won't appreciate this. The group who's been here will. Venice is the prototype of um, the modern commercial regime. That's us. Shakespeare knew that. Um, if you go back historically, you've got Athens as a democracy, Rome as a republic. Um, in the Renaissance, these new kinds of polities, these new kinds of regimes were being formed. Um, they were called commercial republics, um, um, Bulger republics. They were the first instance in the West in which um, people had freedom to make a choice in who, the, who was going to lead them. So there was a degree of freedom in the individual that nobody had ever known before. That's the beginning of the Renaissance. And that is the Renaissance. It begins and it moves west, finally gets to England and Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is just, he's brilliant. He knows all of that. So we started with um, Merchant of Venice and Othello, which is the comic, tragic side of us. And once I got that established, because it gave me a chance to help everybody be more aware of who we are as a republic, what we're trying to do, which I don't think we're doing right now, I'm assuming everybody's pretty much seen that, we went back on time, we did some more Shakespeare, and then finally we went back to the beginnings. We went back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Cannot believe what you guys have done. Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy, we did Boethius a short time ago, which to me is one of the most extraordinary books that's ever been read. I, if, um, I'll, I'll get to it in a second. If any of you have time to do some reading, go online. Um, oh, here's where. I, so, 
um, anyway, that we set off on that journey together, um, and then COVID took us out, and we've been virtual since. What happened at Francis is that um, in the last six months, we've been winding up a seven-year journey together. And we have stayed in literature. It's my field. I'm not a biblical scholar. It's not my field, but um, I've read the Bible a good, you know, I mean, it's our faith. Um, but I wanted to end on Scripture. Um, so we looked at, um, I didn't want to take all of it on, but I, I wanted to get everybody out of literature directly into Scripture so we'd deal more directly with our faith. In a sense, I stepped outside of myself because I'm an English teacher or a literature teacher. It was an amazing, amazing experience for all of us. Most of all, I think, because it was amazing to me. Um, I've read Matthew. I've read the Gospels. I've read Revelation. I've read Old Testament books. But I'd never read one um, with a mind to teaching it. And when I read that way, I have to, for those of you who teach, you don't read the same way. I mean, you've got to read much more closely. I came out of Matthew blown away. I, I, I've got to watch my exaggerations here because they're going to get greater. <laughs> Truly. I was amazed to put Matthew together because it made me realize, I'm not kidding, it goes to this thing about education. Those of you who are in education in our church and concerned about education and our faith because I, I think it's not doing very well. It's one of the reasons I want to do this. Um, through the year, we hear pieces of Gospels. They're all broken up because they're putting together a line. But we never get a Gospel in, in its entirety, ever. <laughs> One of the principles of the work that we've done together is you cannot understand a passage in literature if you don't understand the whole. There's no way. You can read by a, you'll, you'll know that after you read it. If you've read the whole thing and go back to a passage, you'll say, holy cow. It's with occasion mark. I didn't see that. There's, there's no way you can see the meaning in that passage until you see it in light of the whole, because the whole's contained in it. Yeah? So we, we get scripture from the beginning of the year to the end. But how many of us have ever put together Matthew seriously? Or John? When I read Matthew, I was, I was stunned because I thought I knew Matthew. I mean, I do, you know. But then I taught it and looked at it more closely and realized there's something more to see here. Then I read John. I cannot, I cannot begin to describe. I shouldn't have used blown away on Matthew. I was genuinely blown away with John. And I don't want to go into this here because John's doing something the Synoptic Gospels are not doing. He, he's doing something radically different, absolutely radically different. You won't get that if you're hearing bits and pieces of John mixed in with everything else during the year. You're just not going to see it. Put it together as a whole, where you've got the intensity of a whole with you, and you're going to, there's no way you can not feel, holy cow, it's like getting knocked on your seat, because there's so much there you don't see. And we just finished Revelation. Well, I can't even begin to tell you about that. I wish I could talk with you about the two beasts in Revelation, because... Some, some of the people had read Revelation a lot and knew it and didn't see some things. Um, Revelations changed the way I read the Bible. It completes the Bible. It's the last book. And it made me aware that you cannot really understand the Gospels if you don't carry your reading forward and complete it with that. And it gets pretty stark for those of you who have read it. If you do go over it, pay close attention to the two beasts 
who take their lead from the devil or the dragon, Satan, and find out where those two beasts are today. And you'll see how well you read Revelation. Because Revelation is a view of the world from end times. And for those of you who think about these things, you know that there is no past or future for God. There's only a now. Which means John, the prophet, is seeing all things in terms of end times. And the question for readers becomes, can you apply those end times to Rome, Troy, Jerusalem, Babylon, you know, go read Russia, go America. It's start to read that that way. And look at those two beasts and say, where are they today in America? Anyway, it's sort of, we were there, and I said to myself, <laughs> I cannot go forward with this C's group and not do scripture. Or move in that direction. So, if um, all of you should seriously question whether you want to go forward with this or not, it's a good time to leave. Nobody's going to hold it against you, but this is, a, this is going in a very different direction. So, here's, here's what I'm proposing. If you take out that list I gave you, um, you should all have a... Um, did you all get copies of this stuff up here? No. 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 Here, can you, can you pass those out? <laughs> David, can I ask you to help? Sure. There are newcomers here. I wanted to start over. You behave. That's a good one. You behave. It's, it's easy to understand. It is not easy to understand. <laughs> once, once you've heard it, though. I'm not sure. Sorry? I can't. There you go. Sorry, go ahead. I can't hear your voice. I shut off my mic, so I wouldn't bother you. Um, no, good. What are you going to do now, right? It's, it's, I'm going to, you'll hear in a second, I'm going to, I'm going to do the same thing here that we've done. I'm going to start each class with a call in prayer. Um, so we're just getting... Is it loaded in the literatureisprophecy.com? You've read it. You'll see in a minute. You'll know it. You know it. I'll be quiet. No, please don't. You'll never hear me say that again to you. You want to get that yeah, on tape? We got, we got one. Oh, okay. Yeah, we only need one. Here's the here's the course I'm proposing. Um, let me put. I'm going to put my cards on the table here. Right. I feel like I should roll up my sleeves, and I can't. Um, Here's the course of study, and here's the reason for it. Um, I have a wonderful friend in California who's one of the most thorough, deeply Catholic people I know. He was the head of the um, militia of the Immaculata. Um, he's, a, he's a Paul Bunyan sort of guy, 
burly and tough and you, you can't speak two lines without laughing. I mean, he's just got a good heart. Um, absolutely dedicated in his faith. And whenever we talk, it's interesting because I don't think either one of us would differ on a major issue anywhere. But his emphasis on, if we got together to team teach, his emphasis would be clearly on faith. Mine would too, except I would want to give a greater stress to reason, the, our natural powers, in the context of faith. I believe, this is, I'm putting my cards on the table now, I believe that we're losing this battle, not because we're weak in our faith, but because we're weak in our intellects, because we're weak in our minds. Um, I, I would just wonder, you know, for those of you who teach or, or engage with Catholics, if anybody asked you to make a defense of your faith, how well would you do? Could you do it? Could you really go to the heart of our faith and make an argument so that somebody who did not believe would begin to question his own beliefs? Because if we don't, we're just in a standoff. I mean, we're going to talk past each other. And I think, I believe, unfortunately, that's the situation that we're in, that there's a religious world and a non-religious world, and there's a a wall or an abyss between them. Um, and it's exactly where, there where the Catholic Church should shine. Because unlike the Protestant world, we believe that grace perfects nature. Grace perfects nature. There's already something there. Um, reason and faith are meant to come together. So what I wanted to do was take... Um, two pieces by popes who are speaking to that issue, that very issue. In Pope John's Fide Oratio and, and um, Benedict's Regensburg Address, those two popes um, set the world on its edge when they delivered those addresses, the encyclical and Benedict's address. Um, when, when Pope John published Fide Oratio, a lot of Catholics were troubled because they were expecting him to talk to deal with sexual, moral issues, pastoral issues. He took on education and he said, Fide Orazio, faith and reason. We have got to do a better job of bringing reason into our world of faith. That's the whole, that's the whole force, the direction of that encyclical. It's what it's saying, basically, I and mean, you'll see as we move forward, is we have got to recover a better sense of philosophy because we've got to take a, we've got to take advantage of the natural powers that God's given us in the service of our faith and take them to the world. That's what he did in Fidel Ratio. And let me give a, a brief background on that. Um, and this is something of a personal confession on my part. Suzanne and I are converts. I was raised Greek Orthodox and she was raised Protestant. Um, I read Chesterton's Orthodoxy and that's the book that brought me into the Catholic Church. That's how much I think about it. I'm not kidding. It's just, it just it blew me away. In the Greek world, you're in a very mystical world, but reason has no place. I mean, that's the Eastern world. And we met at Berkeley and I entered a world in which the reason was everything and faith was nothing. So two parts of my soul didn't come together. Um, and then I read Orthodoxy and I was amazed that a man could use reason as well as he did when he never mentions faith. He maybe mentions it once or twice. He says that everything that's written there is in, in keeping with uh, the um, Apostles' Creed. But there's nothing overtly religious. Nothing. 
It's not catechetical. He's a journalist. To me, he's, uh, to me, he's one of those profound thinkers in the 20th century. He's not catechizing. He's not proselytizing. He's answering the disorders of the world with powers of reason. And I was just shocked to watch how he could take on every single ideology, every single secular line of thought, and answer it. It stunned me. Um, um, C.S. Lewis did the same thing. For those of you who read Lewis, you know that he was an apologist. He wrote lots of essays in defense of Christianity. And I think, it's, I think most of what he gets, he gets from Chesterton. That's how important Chesterton is. So what I wanted to do was, wait, here to go back. Um, we were converts. Um, I'd never read an encyclical before. I'd hit, I heard them all the time. I'd never read one. John, John Paul put out um, Theology of the Body. I'm not kidding here. Publishing that had a visceral effect on me. For the first time in my life, I felt as if a book were the living presence of Christ walking the streets. I know that's going to sound absurd. Because I happen to think that the disorders of our bodies in our age are greater than they've ever been historically. I mean, what's going on sexually and in marriages and abortions. and So for John Paul to take on the body and celebrate it in a, in a Puritan America, our roots are Puritan. They're not Catholic, they're Puritan. Um, and I'm, 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 tr I'm trusting all of us know the temptations of the body. I certainly do. I, mean, I think all of us struggle with what Paul calls the flesh, and I don't think by that he just means sex, I think he means the world. In, in writing that book, Theology of the Body, to give the body a central place in the church's teaching, I, that book would have never come out of a Protestant world. Never. And I read that, it was like, I'm saying this, not, it was like I could picture Christ walking through the street, dealing with problems. Immediately. You know, whatever was there that needed healing, in that book, I think John Paul helped us to recover a better sense of our bodies. He didn't hide it. In fact, I remember, I remember in, in one of the audiences he gave to some young men, he said to the men, uh, without any embarrassment, he said, you make sure all your wives get climaxes. <laughs> I don't know if we should edit that. That's John Paul. That's our Pope. He was not, Christ took on a body. I, I, I can't see him being ashamed of our body. He took it on. John Paul said, in your marriages, make sure. I mean, he was saying sexually, give of yourselves. Completely give. Don't be afraid. Don't hold back. He's, he is not saying be libertarians. Be loose. But he is saying, do not be ashamed. Do not be afraid. Do not be ashamed. It's our nature. We're not angels. We're not angels. We're, we're corporeal creatures. That stunned me. That just stunned me. Think about the the radical importance of that work in the 20th century. In a scientific age that looks at the body as something mechanical, or the Puritans who look at it as something disgusting, the Catholic Church came out and John Paul and said, theology of the body. Our relationships with each other is spousal. The book of Revelation ends with the bride saying, come. And, and the, or sorry, the, the bridegroom. The bridegroom saying, come. And the bridesmaid saying, come. That's the way, Book of Revel that's the, way the Bible ends. That's the way the Bible ends. 
Um, so John Paul's theology of Giovanni was a wonderful celebration of a spousal relationship between a husband and a wife. Um, at a time when I think our world desperately needed to recover our bodies, the, the glory of them. Um, look around the world and ask, who in the modern world looks at the body in terms of glory as something to take care of? So, um, so I read, I read um, through Theology of Body, and, and we happened to read Fide Oratio at the school where I was teaching. And then, um, so John set the Catholic world a little bit on edge with that I mean, encyclical. And then um, Benedict gave that address in Regensburg. In that, he, he, he caused a lot of people to hate him. The whole fundamentalist Islamic world was furious with him. Because he was saying to both, both the fundamentalist Christian, Christian and the fundamentalist Islamic, that um, you're adding to the problems in the modern world because you're denying that there's a reason, a logos, this logos, this rationality in nature. The whole force of that was it's important that we recover a place of the logos, of reason, in ourselves, in nature, it's all there, in each other. So, um, so what I proposed to do was do Fide Ratio, Regensburg. Abolition of Man is C.S. Lewis taking on the modern world <laughs> directly. It's just got the modern world by its throat. Um, it's a short work. And G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. And I think probably I'm going to try to do the longer works like Orthodoxy and um, Fide Ratio. I'm going to try to do them in three weeks. So. The assignment, the reading assignment next week is try to get through chapters two, three, four. They're short. If you don't make it, don't worry about it. Um, I'm not going to be worried. We'll take three weeks or four. We will take what time we need. Here's what I'm going to do. I am not going to give lectures. I'm not going to assume that you guys have read any of this stuff. We're going to go through this stuff the way I would go through a work of literature. We're going to go through it and talk about it. I'm going to do what I can to help explain things. And we will talk about what's going on and hopefully relate it to our world. Okay. So I won't give lectures. I mean, what I'll do is give presentations like this and then take time for questions and talk about these things. After we're done with those what four works, what I'd like to do then for anybody who wants to continue, is take a break and have a dinner night, maybe a movie, because we've been, all of us in this group, have been waiting to get this meal that Mike's been <laughs> describing for the last year. We've been talking about having a, he described this meal that had all of our mouths watering about six months ago, and um, we've been talking about having a meal. I really would like to get together to have where two or three are gathered together, where we eat, or just have a meal together. Maybe a movie, but if not, certainly a meal. And then we will pick up and do scripture. And I, I, I will plan to do Matthew three weeks, John three weeks, and Revelation three weeks. Um, if any of you are inclined, read ahead. It doesn't matter. And let me be really clear right now. I know lots of you have odd schedules. You've got grandchildren. <laughs> 
you've got jobs and um, if you can't make a night, please don't let that keep you from coming again. You know, if you don't keep up with the reading, if you something keeps you away, you miss. Things are going to come up. You've got families. Um, it's not a classroom. It, I, I just I want to do everything. I don't even like using that word. I, you know, I, I'm avoiding the word students. I keep using parishioners, and even though we're all students. I mean, I really believe that, but I don't. I just do not want this. We're if, all pilgrims. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> Um, I may threaten you with quizzes every once in a while to give you a push, but um, anyway, that's it. That's our course of studies. Um, um, it may be too long for some of you. Stay as long as you can. If you miss, feel at ease coming back. And there's no class requirements. So. Are you going to pick up the literature after all of this? Well, we'll see what, how everybody <laughs> feels. That I don't even want to go there right now. We're going to start in a minute the way that I usually start. We're going to start with a prayer and a lyric. I always start the, the literature course with a prayer and a lyric poem because I want... You'll see when we do the poem, it's my way of trying to help everybody see that Christ is here all around us. Um, and we often don't see that. So um, um, all of you who have been doing this for a while will know, the, will know the two poems we're doing. They're two favorites. You already know that. But we'll do one tonight, and the next week we'll do the other, and I'll pick up a lyric. We'll start each class with a lyric and a prayer, and then we'll get into the reading. But let me stop here before we start. That's the sort of business stuff. Any, anybody have questions? Would you introduce yourself? Because before you were, <laughs> well, you were but everybody took a minute, and you, you came. Oh, I'm sorry. I was late. I went to the other building. I couldn't find I know. So, um, but I was late anyway. No, introduce yourself. Uh, hi, I'm just... Michelle Olihan. And um, I was just wondering, um, I don't know what to say about myself other than that. Whatever you want. Yeah. How long have you been here? Or what's... <laughs> okay. I kept um, picking on you before because I used to make you yeah. move um, your seat. <laughs> I'm married and I have six children. And the oldest is 27, the youngest is 15, three girls, three boys. Um, and we have been parishioners here since, um, I think, for 20 something years. Wow. wow. The church was actually built. They had the mass in here at one point. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. It is good. Yeah. You had a question, I think. I... Yeah, I just. Um, where do we get this um, encyclical? The, oh, the here. Very first one. Yeah, I. Um, you sent the email. Did you get it? Okay. And Did the you? Email. Yeah, it's an email. Got it. I. Um, wow, well, Ellie. I thought Ellie was going to have some, some copies made, but apparently not. You can Amazon. Um, you can. You can get it on Amazon. It's a small book. The link is on the I'll send a link. Did I send it already? You sent it already. That's fine. I'll look it up. I sent so you can this is this is the it's just it's very inexpensive. You can go to Amazon and get it on Prime in a day. I went to the Catholic bookstore over in Keller and they never heard of it. They couldn't find it. They never heard of it? They never heard of it. Oh, are you serious? Sorry, so I just said. I sent a link also to. Um, I gave them all the names, everything. Okay.
I'm just getting lost. I sent um, a, a copy of Benedict's address to it. It's only 10 pages. We'll do that on the night. Um, if anybody has problems, <coughs> Cecilia just said, which is true, um, the Fides et Ratio is available on the Vatican website, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's right here. It's on that way. You sent the link to it. That's how we got it. Okay. I've got, sorry, my mind is too much scrambled. There's coffee. I sent around a sign-up sheet. Would you be, if anybody's not signed it, could you sign it? What I'd like to do is ask everybody if you would please volunteer. We could get two volunteers a week to bring some snacks. It would just be nice to have something to snack on. Um, so, Do can you send list? that around? This is our volunteer list. Yeah, can you just put one tooth down and first week, second week? Okay, so next and week. if we could get two people signing up to volunteer, that would be great. Okay. <coughs> What's the next one? I think, I think that's it. Um, I'm ordinarily online. We take a few minutes and I ask for prayers. And I'm sorry I'm not going to do that tonight, but we are so late. I want to get us started. Um, um, and I've got to give that some thought because this group is getting, and it may get larger. Um, we're going to start every class with a prayer. And I think probably I will, once we get going, I'll ask you for your prayers because it's um, good to have everybody praying for each other. Um, I'm missing here. And then I'm going to read the lyric. The lyric that I'm going to read tonight is um, Gerard Bentley Hopkins, The Wind River. And when we get there, I'll say a little bit about it. But any questions about what I'm proposing and what it's asking of all of us? On the, the two books, you want us to read just by the book, not any edition? By um, I can't do that because it, the editions have changed so much over the years. Um, Fidia Ratio is good because it's broken down by numbers of sections so we can refer to it. So where there's a question, we can go back to that easy. Regensburg Address is short. Abolition of Man is short. It's three short trap chapters. I'm going to do a chapter a week. That's going to be simple. There's not a lot of reading there. Chesterton's going to ask a lot of you guys. Um, I was... I was, it changed my life. I mean, I loved that book. I gave it to Suzanne to read, and she threw it at me. <laughs> I'm not kidding. She, I can, I I'll never forget, it was our first house, and she was in the bedroom upstairs, and I was asking her to read it. She got so furious with me, asking her, she threw it at me. Um, thank God it wasn't hardback. Um, <laughs> it's a, she doesn't feel that way about Chester now. I mean, she's... Um, but he's not an easy read. He... He's, so, he's a journalist. He's not a philosopher. He, I think he's got one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. He's a journalist. He's writing for ordinary people. His writing is really simple, but what he's dealing with sometimes gets complex. And he's playful. He will play with things. And he, he loves paradoxes. Yeah, well, because they're at the center of our faith. A, a God who entered his creation, an omniscient God who became vulnerable, all-powerful, became helpless. He had to nurse at his mother's breath. I mean, our faith is nothing but paradoxes. And Chesterton's mind just opens to them. So to read him is, involves an opening of our minds. 
but it, it takes some work. So mm -hmm. it'll be the longest work that we read, and we'll give four or five weeks to whatever, whatever we get. But I'm not going to rush through things, and I don't want to do that. But I also don't want to linger, because I don't want to work to grow stale on anybody. I want to keep us going. So any questions about what I'm proposing? Of course. What was the name of the book for G.K. Chesterton? Orthodoxy. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yes. Every week I'm going to, I'll get um, um, an email group list set up. Every week before class I'll, I'll try to get out an outline, just a brief outline. Um, I gave you two tonight. One of them is very short. One of them is long, but the shorter outline is the sort of thing I'll try to get to, just so you know what we're going to cover each week, okay? The night, the, the night, the day before, or two days before class, you should get something. And I, I, I may even send the poem to you. Um, for those of you who are new, who've not done this, you can go online. Um, it's a young man who was a UD graduate, a really fine young man who just got married, who, and he and his wife just got pregnant, which is good news for him. He, he did a wonderful job. If you go online, go, go um, online and type literature as prophecy. Three words, literature as prophecy. If you go on there, you'll see an amazing website. I mean, he just did a wonderful job in setting up all the audios from every tape that I've done going back to the time when we started at St. Francis seven years ago, four years ago to... Sees every audio of every class is on there, so that if you want to go back and look at Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, um, or Faulkner, or T.S. Eliot's Murder of the Cathedral, which is about um, um, a martyrdom, it, I think it's probably the most profound work ever written on a on an actual. I mean, it's a it's a it's a play about um, Thomas Beckett, his martyrdom, the struggle that he goes through. It's an amazing work. You can go online and listen to any of those. Um, if you go online, you'll see a, an opening page. If you go to the next page, the content page, you'll go down and you'll see all the audios. At the bottom of that page um, are two options, St. Francis, Elizabeth, and Seton. And under those, those two options, at the very bottom of the page, you'll find all the hard copies, study guides, notes, outlines of everything we've ever done. It would be a wonderful thing for kids to have. Those of you who are teaching kids. It, I mean, there's the, the whole, you know, from Homer to the present, it's all there. So I'm hoping young kids will get to it. Um, people are, we get clicks from all over the world, you know, who, I don't know how they do it, but they, people all over the world find their way to that site. Um, I'd love to see, I'd love to see more kids get to it because I, I think kids are in trouble today. Um, anyway, that's you can get to all of this stuff there. So, so before each class, I will put our materials online, so you can get them before class. Okay. That website you said three words: literature as a prophecy. Mm -hmm. It has to be all in one together, no spaces. Three words: literature as it's a funny, prophecy. Never... Dot com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have to type in it all again. Well, just know that. Did you all hear what Kay said? Mm -hmm. Put the three words together. Just so you know, I have never put them together and always got on. So I don't know. <laughs> <what's> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I don't know. What's 
funny. My, I mean, I've always said to everybody three words to make it distinct because I've never had trouble, but I just type literature as prophecy and I'm right in. But anyway, any, any, any other questions? We've got to get going here. Get past business. Do you like, think the Catholic schools are teaching what you're proposing? All of these? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is Louise Cowan, who was the um, head of the English department at UD for a long time, who was a really remarkable teacher. She got the a President's Award from Bush, Outstanding Teacher of the Year. She's a wonderful woman. She put together, um, working with high school kids, a program called Great Hearts Schools. And my, my own sense is that their curriculums are modeled on what you did. Because the, the whole drift of modern <coughs> education is method, methodologies in graduate school, not content. And Louise took that away. She's saying, stop fooling around with method about how to do something and yeah. learn your tradition. So she went back and started with the Iliad and moved forward. And so the UD curriculum is the Trad 1, 2, 3, 4, the epic, drama, the modern novel, poetry. I mean, it was all there from Homer to the present. So the kids coming out of the UD program didn't just know their fields. They experienced what it was like to be a Greek in the Iliad, a Roman in the Aeneid when, when Rome had its, an Italian and a Catholic in Dante. I mean, you enter into that psyche so what you, what you come away from in the UD program is a sense that you've inherited the, in, <laughs> the interiority of people across our history. You come out more truly Catholic in the sense that you're a part of everyone. Greek, Roman, Italian, English, Dostoevsky, Russian, Faulkner, you know, wherever you are. So, okay, no more questions. Let's, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our lives again and for your presence through the day. That we are here together is an amazing testimony to your work and our Catholic Church. How do we do this? How do we come to these moments? Um, we wouldn't be here except for you. We did not create ourselves. Uh, we're here in wonder, um, trying to draw closer to you, to do your will. I ask a blessing here on the outset of our work together. Let a blessing be upon all that we do. And a special blessing for me. Let this not be um, becoming smart or well-versed in literature. Help us to take these works in and let them become a part of everything that we do in the world so that we are taking more of you. You, are, you contain all of us. Yes, Lewis, Benedict, John Paul, Shakespeare. The extraordinary richness that we get from all these men, they're all contained by you. You, you have all of it. So help us to take in this richness and make it a part of our own lives so that we can take more of you to our world. Whatever, whatever our field, whatever we're doing. Um, we offer these prayers, Christ, in your name, Christ our Lord, amen. amen. Okay, if you could take out the wind hover. 
I try to make it a practice not to take any time with the poems, so sometimes I'm not good at that. But, um, but I'm always going to keep to a minute, but I'm going to try not to say anything. But for those of you who don't know Hopkins, he was, a, um, he was raised Anglican, Protestant. He got involved with the Tractarian movement in the 19th century, which was so important in England because the English church as a whole came to see that it was lukewarm, that it lost its fervor and its meaning. So they gathered together and wrote these tracts. That's why it's called the Tractarian Movement, in an effort to reform the English church. What came out of that Tractarian Movement was um, John Henry Newman, Gerard Manley Hopkins, was a large number of men who, were, who went into it deeply committed to their Christian faith as Protestants. And then they realized as they looked at the problems and went back into history that the problem wasn't in a, or wasn't in a lack of faith, it was their roots. And as they went back into their roots, they discovered that they themselves had turned away from the true faith. And there were a number of remarkable conversions. John Henry Newman was one of them, one of the greatest you know in some of his works. And Gerard Manley Hopkins um, was another. He became a Catholic priest, um, a brilliant, he, he, he did things with poetry that nobody had done before. He's not, I don't think he's easy to read. Um, early on in his priesthood, he reached a point where his love of God was so great and he felt conflicted, um, as if he were compromising his faith by writing poetry, he was going to burn all of his poetry. He's written some of the most extraordinary poetry in the English language, and he marks a radical shift in a tradition. I don't want to go into that because it's too much, but this is one of his most well-known poems, The Wind Tower. Um, what he's doing is taking the same verse form that Shakespeare used, it's called iambic, iambic pentameter. I am is a rising foot, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, not a falling foot, da-da-da-da, it's a rising foot, da-da-da-da. Five feet, iambic pentameter, that's Shakespeare's line. Um, that's the Chaucer's, that's the traditional line of English poetry. He took that line and introduced into it Anglican forms of feet, which consisted of um, strong stresses across a line. So he incorporated the two and created a kind of poetic line that nobody had ever seen before. So musically, he's doing something rare. Okay. One of the reasons I read poetry is I want everybody to hear the music of poems because I think that most people think that literature has nothing to do with music, and I think all literature has a musical center, even if it's a Jane Austen novel. There's an order centering that work. There's a harmony. Its center is musical. If you'll take that on um, trust right now, even if you're skeptical about it. In the wind hover, Hopkins is writing about a wind hover, a bird. He's describing an experience in, in which he went out at dawn, which was his custom, to take a walk. He looked up in the skies and he saw this wind hover. That's it. So a wind hover. Came back and wrote a poem. The first eight lines is called an octave. The second is sistet. Eight lines, six lines. It's called the Italian, Italian sonnet. In the first eight lines, typically the poet gives us the experience itself, what happened. So we, we're, we're allowed to participate in the same experience. In the sestet, you've got the mind reflecting on something. That's what we do as human beings. 
something happens, we reflect on it. We don't like what our grandchildren do, we want them not to come the next time. <laughs> Whatever our reflections are. We so here's the Italian sonnet. He's recalling this moment when he saw this wind hover and then he reflects on it. I'm trying to be careful not to give away. When I read it, be aware of all the illusions. Um, um, the Dauphin, the prince heir to the throne of France. The Dauphin, who's the prince heir in Christianity? The prince of the light. He's there in the light, in the dawn when the light comes. It's the prince heir, it's Christ the king. Listen to the religious language as we go through it. I don't want to go into this, but I just keep, just know that there's a lot here that we don't have time to go into, but it's there. Um, um, and then when he, when he looks, when he gives the reflection, notice what he's saying when he looks back on that moment, okay? So, Gerard Manley Hopkins, the wind hover, to Christ our Lord. And remember, he's doing an iambic pentameter line, but he's got these um, Anglican, old, old Saxon rhythm. Boom, 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 boom. Just like a rhythm in a band or an orchestra. The wind hover. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's a dauphin. Dapple-drawn dawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air. And striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind my heart in hiding stirred for a bird. The achieve of the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, O air pride plume here buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down cillion shine and blue bleak embers, ah my dear fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Now, I don't want to go into this because this is not our purpose, but I hope you hear the beauty of it. Let me just point out a couple of things here. He knows when he watched this bird, he watches this bird do an extraordinary thing, and in that moment, he feels the danger for him as a priest because he knows the power of mortal beauty. We can become so attracted to something in the world that it can take us over. That's how powerful. We know that in our world. We should know it from ourselves. We know it from our world. He looks at what this bird does. Now, picture this for a moment. The wind hover is flying in the sky, and then for a moment, it masters the wind. It's like it pauses, just masters it. He doesn't have to keep flapping. For that moment, he masters it. In that moment, Hopkins sees Christ on the cross. All of his, So it's a bird. But he knows, this is where we're going to go in Fideoratsu actually in a minute, he knows that there's nothing that's been created that doesn't have the stamp of God. Does the scientific world see that today? That's where we're going to go in Fideoratsu. He looks at a bird, it's a bird, and he sees this bird suddenly do something that shows, for an instant, a mastery of the wind. He just masters, it's there. You know, he, he hovers for a second. And in that moment, there's a gathering of all of these powers, and, and we'll see what happens in a second. But that's what he sees, and then he comes home and reflects on it, okay? 
So let me just take a minute with the sestet. Brew beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. Buckle has two meanings. What are they? It's two meanings of buckle. To collapse under the weight of something, under pressure. And to secure. Yes, <laughs> right. A butt, you can belt, pull things together, like a belt buckle, but you can all collapse. Notice how both of these things happen because for him the most extraordinary thing in the world that's ever been done is Christ going to his death and taking every one of his powers, human and divine, and letting them be crushed. It's in that moment that he conquered death and sin. All of it. So that's the most extraordinary event that will ever take place in history. And he captures it, he sees it, in a thing in nature. Right? In this moment, when it, watch how that line goes. That line goes fast and then runs over and stops. Through beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle, stop. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. It's dangerous because he sees the beauty of it. How many people get caught in the beauty and don't go to Christ? But notice what he says afterwards. No wonder of it. There's no wonder. Sheer plod makes plowed down cilion shine. If you watch a farmer plow his ground, you know that it starts very clay. And the more he plows it, the more it turns into a cilion, a fine dirt that almost gives off a light. So, I love that. The mere working at something. So anybody toiling, teaching, mother, father, whatever the business is, whatever you're doing, the sheer toil of it every day. Let it be the lowly work of a farmer because nobody gives the farmer any credit. The lowly work of a farmer working his land. That dirt turns into cilion and it shines. No wonder of it. No wonder. It's all around us. Sheer plod makes plowed down cilion shine. And in addition, blue bleak embers on oh my dear fall gall themselves and gash gold vermilion. You know that when you start a fire, at first the fire rages and it just burns. But there reaches a point where the fire is beginning to die out. It, it's just like Christ on the cross or the, bin, the, word, the wind hover. The, the more it feeds itself, the more it consumes. And in, there's a moment when it produces this vermilion light, this beautiful glow. So it's not raging and it's not ashes. It's this gold vermilion. And it's because they're falling and galling and gashing. Okay? I'm going to take it a step and then I'm going to... How, how, how applicable is that image to any of our inside struggles daily from one hour to the next? The falling and galling and the gashing. It could be our husbands or our wives or our children or our work or whatever, but inwardly, that's what's happening. And blue bleak embers, ah, oh my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold for me. Christ is at work in a fire. So he's not just in the wind hover, right? He's in a farmer, and he's in a fire going out. So he's taking three completely distinct images and showing that Christ is everywhere there. Do we see him? Do we feel him? Okay. That's Hopkins' wind hover. Let me stop. We're not going to take much time on poetry. For that, you've got to, you've got to stay in this class until we get back to poetry. 
any comments on this poem before we we turn to uh, John Paul? Any comments on the poem? Brief questions. I, I don't want to take a lot of time, but I'd be glad to take a minute for anybody who wants. Do you see what he's doing? Do you have a sense of what he's doing here? Somebody shake a head yes. <laughs> just, just, I just have one brief comment. Sorry? I just have one brief comment. Sure. Um, when you said the word buckle, I saw Christ on the cross. Yeah. So and did that he. moment where he collapses, yeah. it is finished. His body buckles. Yep. I saw that collapse. Yep. And uh, that, that moment when it all is finished, and it is a shiny moment, but it's a. Uh, I just saw it. Yeah, good. I just saw that image. Yeah. Yeah. One of the wonderful things about Hopkins, if you read more of his poetry, you'd see it. Um, I hope you all see it here. It's a good reminder. So often we might feel alone or defeated or you know, whatever's going on. What Hopkins is showing us is that Christ is never not there, even when things are falling and galling against each other, spiritually, whatever's going on, whatever agony, anguish. One of the things that we've inherited is our Catholic faith, and I don't, I mean, this is sort of getting ahead, but it's so appropriate for what we're going to do. One of the most profound gifts that we've been given in our faith is this, that the, that the clearest image of conquering for us as Catholics is Christ being defeated on a cross. In that moment, um, <laughs> this is one of the things I don't like about our modern world, in that moment, we have the most beautiful thing that ever has been offered our senses. It's God being made into a grotesque image of himself. Tortured, um, scorned, you know, the thorns, um, all the punishments, that the labor of the carrying of the cross, all of that. He takes it to a cross. In that moment, we've got a, a grotesque picture so at the center of our faith should be the grotesque. That that is the most beautiful thing in creation. If those of you remember um, when we did Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, when Oedipus blinded himself, I said at that point, he's the most beautiful creature in that play because he finally sees himself. His eyes are bleeding. He's got two caves, sockets. He has no eyes. He's a grotesque figure. He's as close to Christ as the pagan world got. At the center of our faith is a grotesque beauty. We can't forget that. Because the tendency of the modern world is to clean everything up, to put it away, hide death, everything that's uncomfortable. The center of our faith is, <laughs> here's where it all is. So part of the beauty of this poem is that he's showing in this moment of what the Windhover does, that there's an image of Christ. Okay? And then he sees it again, the farmer, in the toil of a farmer, and he sees it in a fire going out. If you can see it there, where, is, where does it not exist? There's nothing, there, there's nothing that exists that doesn't have the imprint of God. The modern world doesn't look at things that way, but that's the way it can. There's nothing. There's no outside of it. There's nothing out there. God is everywhere. He's inside our world. He's there. But outside of it, there's nothing. Do we see God in our world? Is he everywhere? Are we aware of that? Okay. You 
heard this before. <laughs> Talking to you. <laughs> okay, let's let's pick up Vide Rice here. Can you all take out your um, um, If you take out the notes, I, I asked Ellie to give you two sets. You should have two. There's one set that's just a page in the back page, but there's another that's six pages long. Do you have both of them? No, no. Yeah. I have the one that's six pages. Good. Just there's a. a um, you should have two sets. Um, just raise a hand or something, and you can take them around. Is this the one that you're talking about? This. Yeah, but six pages. Yeah, six pages. Yeah, yeah. front and back. Yeah. 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 Don't worry, because if you've got one of them, that's enough. I'll, I'll send them both out by email um, tonight or tomorrow. Here's my opening question to everybody in the group. Um, you always had trouble with What's my question? At a time here, I was going to actually give these um, percentages. If any of you are following statistics today, you know that about um, half of the people raised Catholic leave the church, roughly half. Um, I, want to, I, want to, I, want to, I want to pose a problem here to get us started. Um, um, a correspondingly high number leaves the Protestant world. So a large part of um, the Christian world is in Exodus. There are people turning away for whatever reason. Just leave it at that for a moment. 50%, over 50% of Catholics leave the church. 10%, roughly 10% return. Roughly 10% um, remain undecided without knowing where to go after they leave. 40% of that number remain outside the church. So the greater number of people leaving the church are not returning. Now hold on to that as a starting point for our work together. Over half the people, Catholics, raised Catholics, are not. Teenagers are not doing well. Lots of teenagers, our children, leave the church. So I want to list some problems. <laughs> um, but before I do... I want to ask you a question just to find out. It would be interesting to hear from you guys. Um, um, what's the problem? I've, I've got a list of things that I want to cover here, but I'd really like to hear because there's a large group here. What's the problem? I'm asking it seriously. And I, if you could just try to keep your remarks somewhat short, I don't want to, you know, I, we're going to. We've run way over past the beginning stuff, but well, we had we had a lot to we had a lot to cover to get things going. 
What's the problem? Well, in talking to my kids who are in their 20s and 30s, I hear it doesn't matter. <clears throat> I'm not sure. We don't know what's true. And Boy. It mostly, it doesn't really matter. It's not important. Yeah. Lack of catechesis, I think, is, you mm -hmm. know, the last 50 years maybe. But even where kids are catechized, and this is why, I mean, we're real concerned from within the church, something's not going on in catechism. Say your name again. Uh, Bob. Bob, I shouldn't, I can't, yeah, Bob, sorry. So good. But I think it's just that everything else is easier than the Catholic faith. Uh, the Catholic faith is asking you to commit to do things, and others are come over and have a good time, yeah. and yeah. you don't have to do this, you don't have to do that, so it's, it's just easier. I mean, I come from a family of Ten, and I think there's three of us that are practicing Catholics. So wow. We talk about a percentage. Oh, wow. yeah. But we lost our mother too when, you know, when the youngest was a year and a half. So oh, I'm going to wow. stop right. I, I, I want to pick up. I don't want to. I want to hold on to you for a second. What can we say about fathers? What has to be said about fathers? For what you just. I don't want to put you personally on the spot, Bob, but. If you can keep it in a generalized form, because I, I mean we we don't we hear that a lot. Mother died, or um, if a family's been raised under a mother. I mean, what's going on with dads in our world today, or any any age? They're not there. Too busy. Yeah. Too busy. Weak. That's a bigger one. Say. Weak. 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 In Weak. Their They're not there. Weak in their faith. They're not there. Isn't that the biggest predictor of whether your kids will stay exactly. in the church? Is the father. The father practices or not. Is that? Yeah. I mean, is it? It is. I think it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's the biggest predictor. It's the biggest predictor. Bob, I don't want to, sir, I want to come back to you because you, I couldn't agree more, by the way. It's one of my, one of the first reasons I'd give. But you said the Catholic Church is harder. Name two or three ways. In, identify ways in which it's harder. By doing what? What? Well, <laughs> Personally, then, if you if you get a divorce, you got to go through an annulment or anything like that to proceed on, or even to be feel like you're part of the church. So why, you know, again, it's difficult to stay there when you can't even necessarily maybe participate or be involved. You got to go through the annulment and you go through the. Yeah. So there's that's one big thing yeah. in my personal situation. Yeah. Uh, the others is. The ones that my brothers and sisters that left is pretty much you just have to believe Christ died on the cross and you're saved and you don't, so you don't have to. Whether they say that again, I disagree with them because there's works and there's also uh, faith. You have works and faith both. Yeah. Yeah. They don't necessarily believe that, so again, yeah. that makes it easier. Right. So right. Those, right. those are the right. the things that you know, right. find it a little more difficult. Yeah. The Catholic faith, I feel like, has expectations. And when you think about expectations, they make you a better person when somebody has expectations of you, but they scare most people. So to know that the Catholic Church expects for you to come to Mass every Sunday, and the Catholic Church expects for you to try and not sin and to go to confession when you do sin, that turns people away. Yeah. They have expectations, and if I can't live up to them, it scares people away and so it's just easier to stay away yeah. than to show up and, and be held accountable. Yeah. 
There's um, also lack of consistency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because Ellen and I used to teach the baptism class in our church. Yeah. And we would tell young parents that uh, if they don't see you going to Mass every Sunday, if they don't see you go to confession on a regular basis, if they don't see you contributing to the parish, getting involved in ministry, being an altar server, being a Eucharistic minister, being a lector, don't expect them to continue. Because when they get to their teenage years, you know, and here I'm talking from the perspective of being an educator for almost 16 years, all different levels. The teenage years, that's death. Say one thing, do another. Mm -hmm. Let me pick You're up. Yeah, let me pick up and yeah. um, see your name again, sorry. Jessica. Jessica, sorry. Okay. I've got to relate that to Shakespeare's Jessica. Just so. <laughs> Jessica. Um, when I was looking at the statistics on nuns, you all know what the nuns that word refers to today. It's the it's the people who don't have any, any beliefs who leave the mm -hmm. church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That the number of people who have no religious affiliation today is higher than it's ever been historically yes. in America. Yeah. So we're living in a country that at least statistically is showing that it's lost its roots. It's whatever for whatever reasons. I mean, I want I don't want to close this down for whatever reasons um, are not going to church. And the numbers are high in the Catholic Church, just for two things. Interesting, when I was looking at the statistics the last week um, to get ready for this, it was interesting to see that in the uh, surveys that were taken, one of the questions was how many times, or do you, how many, how many of you go to church once a month? And I, I know there are lots of people who think, I don't need to go to church, I believe in God. I mean, it goes back to... But just think about the difference between being required to go to church every week and feeling like you don't have to go to church unless you want to. You know, so you go once a month. Because for a lot of Christians, that satisfies their sense of an obligation. So obviously the Catholic Church is asking a lot more. To pick up the confession thing, what do you say to somebody? What do you say to somebody who says, God knows I believe in Him. I don't have to go to confession. Does anybody want to take that up briefly? I want, to, I want to be careful because we've got to we've got to get to the beginning of this. But what what do you say to somebody who takes his faith absolutely seriously and who believes that Catholics are being idolatrous because they practice something like confession? Anybody have an answer? What's oh here it is. Can we give no? I'm gonna you be still oh, for a second. What um, can we give an adequate defense of our faith? If somebody says, I don't need to go to confession, God knows my heart, short of blowing up, because I, you know, what do you say? What's, I mean, as a Catholic, what, what's your answer? Why confess? Because it helps you. How? How? By admitting. It helps you by admitting your faults. So, yeah. it's not that God needs to hear it. It's to help yourself. With Him. Yeah. And we know we're forgiven because the priest absolves us from our sins, but when you go straight to God, I mean, well, you might be forgiven or you might not. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> did He answer you? I mean, did, you know, when you went straight to God, did He say uh, your sins are forgiven? Yeah. But 
we have the you know the greatness of confession where the priest actually it takes a lot of humility. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think that's, that's that's a problem too that a lot of people you know they say oh I don't kill anyone I don't I don't, you know, right. I don't steal I don't right. really have right. anything to confess. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. See, but what, what no I think sin. is interesting is that yeah. the Protestants haven't gotten rid of confession; they just changed the form by having things like testimonies. They have to get up there and stand in front of the congregation. They tell, you know, how they've sinned against their family or their, you know, and they, and then ask for forgiveness from the congregation. So they didn't really get rid of it. They just changed it. But it shows that we need that as human beings. We need that confession. And the Catholic, and, and Jesus sacramentalized it when he gave the apostles the authority to whose sins you forgive are forgiven and whose sins you retain are retained. Yeah. Let me stop here for a second because I, and I want to go on. I want to be really careful. I don't want this to turn into a, one of those free-for-all things. One of the differences that um, um, Connie's touching on is that there's an objectivity to what goes on in confession. That um, The faith is that objectively Christ is there and we've spoken to So we're acknowledging somebody greater than ourselves. We're turning to him. But in fact... Objectively, that sin is forgiven. And the reason I, I want to just touch on this for a second, in Hawthorne's um, Scarlet Letter, which is an important book of American literature, Dimsdale confesses in the middle of that book and thinks he's confessing, but it's clear that he's only partly confessed. It doesn't have an objective reality for him. It can't for the Protestant, um, because he believes in his heart if he does it. I mean, how... how, how how good are we at getting into the darkest, most obscure depths of the human soul? Especially ours. Sorry? Especially our own. Go ahead. Nothing, I'm just saying. So, <laughs> yeah. so when we go to confession, it's not just a subjective thing left in our own private will as it would be for, or even if they took it to a con congregation, because even then, our, well, I mean, a Protestant would say yes, they're adequate to judge. Mm -hmm. But we know congregations differ the objective reality, well, that's why they fragment so often. When you go to confession in the Catholic world, you're going knowing that that's an objective truth. And even if you're not completely honest, the whole movement of the point of that is to get you to get more and more honest about what you've done, what's going on. But anyway, sorry, sorry what, you go, what's your name? Phil, but I was going to say the same thing she did, but Jesus didn't give you personally a direct connect to confess, okay. you had to go to the apostles who would then judge. Oh, yeah. Objectively for it. And I, I want to just give one more. Anybody else who has another reason? What what's what's wrong with our world? Why are so many people leaving the Catholic world? That, um, say your name. I'm Meredith. Meredith. I think. For a lot of people, especially now, it's because the Catholic Church's teachings are difficult to accept. So the teaching on abortion, the teaching on birth control, the teaching on men can't change to women, women can't change to men. Those, they want to be free to do whatever they want to do. They want to be free to decide what's good and what's evil. And the Catholic Church staunchly says there is a truth, and you have to live by the truth. Meredith, yeah, sorry, is that it, Meredith? Uh -huh. Meredith, set the two principles next to each other. Can clarify them, can you? What's at stake in one world and what's the principle at stake in the other as you presented it? 
let's say that the Catholic Church says there's a truth, and the rest of the world doesn't want to live. They want to be able to decide what's true for them. True. True. Yeah. True. yeah, they want to make their own truth. Yeah. So, Doc, you want to give you a diff? Oh, we were just talking about it earlier, and I said that the Catholic Church, the Catholic person, has an authority over him. You know, he has, he has the priest, he has the bishop, he has the archbishop, he has the pope, he has the magisterium. There are all these levels of authority that they come up, that we come up against. Um, and in the Protestant Church, there is no authority except the final authority, and that's yourself, which is a really dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. I can put it, if I can just pick that up for a second. So in the one instance you have the individual self who stands aware of a greater reality than himself. He has obedience to it, he takes, it's a point of reverence for him. In the other world you've got the private will, and that's particularly strong in America's a Protestant world. I mean, that's its founding. If we ever get to Hawthorne and Melville, we'll see it in spades, but the private will is its own arbiter. You, 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 you're the one to decide. So there is nothing greater. So if a woman wants an abortion, the Supreme Court acknowledges that nobody has a greater authority over that woman than her own private will. There is nothing to appeal to. If a child, if a young woman of 12 wants an abortion, or if, I hear instances of a mother wanting to allow her son to have a sex change when he's eight or, you know. Um, at the center of the American polity is this elevation, this exaltation of the private will. In the Catholic world, this, the self is aware that there's a greater reality to which he has to constantly turn um, for his bearings. I can't resist. Karen, uh, Karen and I are both in the Bible timeline, and we've heard this from... Heard what? On. Sorry? Heard what? This will, self-will, versus uh, someone God telling him our laws. Right. If you do this, right. this will be that will. All through the Bible that we have explored, you know, certain chapters, it was like the people failed because they failed to listen to God's word, what he had established. And said, no, we wanted to do it our way. Yeah. Well, they didn't do well. Yeah. And that's what's yeah. been going on for years. I mean, it was just a yeah. revelation. If I can just, and then I'm, I'm going to stop because I want to turn to these notes to give them to you quickly, as quickly as I can. Um, one of the other issues that's, that's at stake between somebody who's Catholic, who has all these obligations or demands placed on him, and a Protestant who's encouraged to make his own will the arbiter of whatever he does, is that, the, the, this is going to go back to one of the fundamental points again, at the root of the differences between the Catholic and Protestant world is our understanding of our fall. And I'm not sure that how much anybody's aware of this. For the Protestant, the effects, the consequences of the fall were complete, absolutely complete. Our fall from God um, shows itself in its complete effects. We are depraved. In essence, we ruined our essence. Our essence is destroyed. We're depraved. We're utterly depraved. Without the grace of Christ, we can't do anything. Hold on to that if that's a new notion to you. For the Protestant, the effects of the fall were complete. We, we slipped into a state of depravity. That's an awful state. For the Catholic, that's not true. 
For the Catholic, we were wounded. You cannot destroy an essence of God. We were made in his image. That's our essence. We are wounded and left with the effects of concupiscence. And if anybody struggled with that, and I'm assuming most of you have, concupiscence can feel overwhelming. Like it's total. But that's a fundamental difference. The Catholic believe, or I mean the Protestant believes we're depraved in essence. Now hold on to that because I want to take this another step. That's not true for the Catholic. For the Catholic, God made us good. Everything he made is good. You cannot destroy an essence. You can wound it. A, a person in the Catholic world has free will. He can do things that will damn him. But it's not assumed that he's damned at the beginning, as he is for a Protestant. It's a much darker world. So the Catholic holds on to free will, and here's where I wanted to go. He also holds on to a sense of a nature. So long before we ever get to a point of, you know, will, 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 the Catholic holds on to a belief that we have a nature, we were created. And that nature is a guide. What's happened in the modern world is there's, there's been an elevation of the will, so you can do with your nature whatever you want. For the modern science, we're evolving, we're becoming, we don't know what. We don't have a nature. So nature's no longer a guide. We can make it whatever we want. If we want to have a sex change, we can. If we want to have five marriages, we can. There's not a nature. So we've not only lost a sense in America of an authority that relates us to a transcendent, a divine order, but we've lost a sense of our nature. We've lost a sense of um, the autonomy of reason in its own order. We no longer can look to it for a guide to say, that's unnatural, that's not, you know. So there's lots of things going on in this, this slip that we're talking about. Let me... Oh yeah, how did you guys know that? Oh, your son? That's right. Melanie, I don't want to lose you. <laughs> I'm not even sure what right to do. There. Right. Right. Is there? Right there. Can you? There's another one there. <coughs> oh, here you're talking about that? Let me give you some of the things that um go ahead, Mike. Anything you do on the Quickly, um, here's a list of some of the um, causes for the spiritual decline in America, if you can call it that. The first is that our age tends to be materialistic. And that has two meanings, and I want to be clear here. By materialism, I don't mean that we um, stuff our houses with possessions, things. Most people think that's the clearest indication of our being materialistic. I include that, it is. We are a people obsessed with filling up spaces. And I'm saying that really, if you look at the Eastern world, it, it's comfortable with space. If you look at the Western world, they don't know what to do with empty space. There has to be something. So the houses just get crowded with things. I don't mean materialism in that way, although I include it. By materialism, I mean this. Materialism means, fundamentally, as a, as a philosophic view of life, is that there's nothing more than matter. There's nothing more than matter. All things are explained by matter. Um, 
Here's St. Thomas answering that, what, a thousand years ago, almost. This is in the first part of the Summa in question 75. It's manifest that not every principle of vital action is a soul, for then an eye would be a soul, as it is for a principle of vision, and the same would be applied to the other instruments of the soul. But it is the first principle of life, the soul, which we call soul. Now, though a body may be a principle of life, as the heart is a principle of life in an animal, yet nothing corporeal can be the first principle of life. For it's clear that to be a principle of life or to be a living thing does not belong to a body as such. Since if that were the case, every body would be a living thing or a principle of life. And that's not the case. Matter does not explain itself. Matter does not explain itself. But the modern materialist believes that it does. Now just to show the absurdity of this, one of St. Thomas's arguments, it's a good argument for Aristotle knew it before the Christian world, Every contingent event has a prior contingent event leading to it, yeah? You hit a cue ball, it goes into another ball. If a car hits a car, it, you know, each thing has an effect. It causes another thing. Those are all contingent things. They're caused by something before them. Aristotle said thousands of years ago, contingencies don't explain the world. Because every contingency has a prior contingency to it, yeah? If you do that, you go on infinitely. That is, you'll never have an explanation. You'll just keep going on. Aristotle said, there has to be something that isn't contingent in itself. That uncontingent thing, which doesn't have a cause in itself, is God. God. Yes? Yeah. There is nothing before him, nothing outside of him. Nothing caused him. If it did, he would owe his existence, his goodness, to something else. Yeah? So, all contingent things are not explanations. <coughs> the Big Bang Theory is an accident. It's a contingent event. It does not explain anything except to a materialist who assumes that's the cause of things. And if you look at the materialists who, are, who use the argument of proteins, the necessity for proteins, the chances of a protein coming into existence as an, as an accident is infinite times infinite. It won't happen. So the, the modern theories attempting to explain creation are myths. I cannot use that word strongly enough. They're not explanations. Who can give an explanation for these things? Can we give a defense of our faith? Okay? We are materialists in that twofold sense, but I, I mean it less in terms of, we buy too many things, than a worldview. Most people today, this is what's amazing. Most people, young kids, they grew up under scientific mindset. By the way, John Paul's going to defend science. He should. The source of science is God. It's knowledge. The source of faith is God. The source is ultimate source is the same. We shouldn't have a trouble with that. But if a, if a scientist starts saying that matter is the explanation of everything and he can't give an explanation for that, you've got to say, then what? Kids grow up today with empiricist prejudices. They believe that what's real is only what's empirically in front of you. So they're going to go, who cares? What is it? You know, If you grow up with that mindset, then the universe goes on infinitely. It's like infinite space. And you grow up with the sense that there's got to be something outside of that space. We're evolving from something. For a Christian, that is not true. There's nothing that wasn't created by God that doesn't have his mark. 
So to go against God has only one possible effect. It's got to be, it's contrary. <laughs> Sorry for this. I was reading, um, we were doing um, Revelation last night. And in Revelation, there's that passage, 16 or 17 chapter, where it describes the dragon um, giving rise to two beasts. One of them comes out of the sea, one of them comes out of the land. But they're both given their power from the dragon, from Satan. Read those sometimes. The second beast is described exactly as you would describe Christ. Because it's trying to mimic him. Because there's nothing else to do if you're trying to do something, whether you know it or not, you're trying to mimic some good. That second beast is an image of prophets who are defending the first beast who represents all the <coughs> material forces of the world gathering together to create Rome, Troy, Babylon, America. It's just a secular view of creating a utopian earth, right? You want to make this good? If you don't believe in God, you want to create a good world. Communism, wherever you, socialism. Mm -hmm. The second beast is the prophet of that world, to create a good world. It's like trying to bring the kingdom down to earth. And if you read the second beast, it's an exact image of what the prophets did with Christ. Hold on. Think about, think about today all those people who are giving defenses of a utopian socialistic world, who have no sense of God. If we do this, 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 if we get rid of this, 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 we will have this world. They're prophets of this new order. But to create that order means trying to take the place of God that we're going to create this heaven on earth. That's Marx. The source of most of these thinkers is Marx or one of the rationalists at the end of the 19th century. What happens when you mimic them? They're all mimicking Christ. They talk about the wounds that people have. If we only do this, we'll get rid of wounds. I mean, so um, what we what we are surrounded with in our age are mimics of Christianity, attempts to bring the kingdom here in a political system. The prophets of that. You, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but think about the most popular people in the progressive movement who want to see this new world come in. Um, they are the prophets. They want to see this world. Um, um, John Paul opens Fide Ratio, um, if you look at the notes, in a section called Know Yourself. The most important thing for us, he starts Fide Ratio by saying, the most important thing, the beginning thing for us, is to know ourselves. So on the opening page, he begins, In both East and West, we may trace a journey which has led humanity down the centuries to meet and engage truth more and more deeply. It's a journey which has unfolded within the horizon of personal self-consciousness. Our journeys begin in self-consciousness. Okay, now hold on to that. I want to come back to it. We're about at our end. The more human beings know reality in the world, the more they know themselves in their uniqueness with the question of the meaning of things and of their very existence becoming ever more pressing. The admonition, know yourself, was carved in the temple portal at Delphi to know yourself. Hold on. For those of you who don't know, what John Paul's referring to is that moment in the beginning of what we know as Western philosophy, basically. 
The Delphi Oracle um, claimed that Socrates was the wisest man in the world. This is where this all began. This is where John Paul is going. Socrates was the wisest man in the world. Socrates was confused because he knew he wasn't wise. So he went around questioning people. And every time he questioned people, he wanted to find out what they knew. Because he believed everybody was wiser than he was. What he discovered was how foolish everybody was because when he started questioning them, he realized that they didn't know what they claimed they did. The beginning of philosophy is humility. It's to know that you don't know things. So he had that from the gods. He was the wisest man because he didn't know. He knew that he didn't know. Other people thought they were smart, always had answers. They didn't have the humility to ask or wonder. Now here's my opening question before we leave. Why is it important that John Paul starts with personal self-consciousness? Why is that important? He doesn't say the Catholic Church is objective, gives the objective truth. He starts with a pagan, with Socrates and Plato. <coughs> and Socrates <coughs> realized he came to learn after he talked with all these people. That's what all the Socratic dialogues are, by the way. Socrates engaging people and showing that they don't know what they think they do. Why does John Paul start there? With a pagan and John Paul saying, the beginning of our journey is in personal self-awareness. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because it's true for all time? In every age and person? That's a true thing to but know yourself. True, why, Mary, why? Why is it important? Otherwise you're not authentic. You're not We're who God eight. made you to be. Yeah. Okay, you just brought in an element here that wasn't there in the first place. God made you to be. How did you got into this? It's because I believe in Him. <laughs> <laughs> and and I know go back to the most <laughs> basic Baltimore Catechism. It starts with, who made me? God made me. Why did God make me? <laughs> okay, stop. Just stop. And leave God out of it for a second, can you? Go. Could, and I don't want to be capable. Don't want to be disrespectful to the, the Baltimore Catechism. Go back to your opening, and can you enlarge it? Your your first comment was what? Who made me? Expand that to include other things without God. Can you for a second? Where did I come from? It's, I, I mean, this if. To know yourself, you have to know these things. You have to wonder. You don't have to know them. You have to wonder. These things, about name them. them. Give us some examples. Why am I here? What is my purpose? How did I get here? What's going to happen What's when I leave end? here? Yes. When you start asking those questions, how can you begin to ask them and not wonder if there isn't a God? Where did did, did anybody ever start saying I created myself? Can anybody make that claim that we made ourselves? or our grandparents made themselves. You begin with that question because that question takes you to ultimate questions. How did I get here? Where did I come from? What's my end? What's my purpose? I'm different from somebody else. What does that mean? You can't ask any one of those questions without suddenly wondering, is there a person who made me? Is there a God? So wherever you go in that journey, just by beginning with those questions mean you're already wondering in a way that opens you on a transcendent moment. Something, some source outside yourself. 
Let me stop here. So the beginning, John Paul begins with this introduction, talking about the importance of self-knowledge. It's absolutely crucial that we begin wondering, because in doing that, we begin to question other things. And if we go from ourselves to our neighbors, our family, the world, the universe, the scope of those questions and, and the answers to them get larger and larger and larger. So he begins Fide Ratio with this section, then he's going to go on immediately to show somebody came into the world to answer those questions definitively. So there should never, ever, ever be a question about the ultimate meaning of things. Either that guy was a lunatic and we should discount what he said, or he was God. Because nobody could have done what he did or said what he said, gone through what he did, unless it was authentic. So the options are either that guy was nuts, we shouldn't be paying attention to him, or that was gone. And if it was, and he taught us what he did, we begin to see that it's just no longer possible to say, it doesn't matter, because it does matter. Who am I? Why did I get here? What's my end? What's going on? Those are fundamental to every human being. That's John Paul's starting point. That's the beginning of Fide Ratio. And what he's going to do is he's going to primarily affirm the central role of faith in the life of a Christian. But he's going to go on to argue that that faith will be crippled if it does not have the support of reason. That's why the world was so upset um, and concerned with this because it's almost like he was defending the pagan. He's not, as a Catholic, he's saying faith and reason go together. We are not Protestants. We cannot dismiss faith. We cannot dismiss reason. Remember what I said. We're made in God's image. For a Protestant, the world is ruined. Reason is ruined. Luther felt that way. Reason. He hated Aristotle. For a Catholic, that can be so. Nature's good. God made us good. We're wounded. Reason is a great gift. How well are we using reason today in support of our faith? That's the great challenge of Fide Ratio. Okay? Let's stop because we're over. <laughs> any, can we leave or any troubling questions or leave it here? Okay, it was really good. I can't tell you. Touch my heart to you all. Good to see you. Um, those of you who have lost your sense, see you next week. <laughs> Melody, I'm going to try to manage this to get you more involved in this. I don't know how to do this, but be patient with me for a while, okay? Who's, who's there now? Oh, Tina, I saw it, but I see the T. Hi, Tina. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to click off for you guys. Uh, I, it's so good to see you. I'm, I've got to learn to work with this, so be patient with me for a while. Okay. Okay. Bye. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. I didn't know what the picture had. Thank <laughs> you.
So yes to what you're saying. Yeah, well, I are up here every day. It starts with the shepherds, and, the, and the shepherds are. We haven't I had it, and it was probably in America. two. No, no. It was probably. I'm going to say I haven't done it for two years because the last. Yeah, year I think there are some. And then the really are before that, yeah. but the electric, the, 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 the vacation the vacation, and it was always oh, a super a, exciting not, weekend. Anyway, but so I think, I think real, Rome is going to be kids that one year we did it two weeks in a row. Catholic kids could come. We had like five or six hundred kids. Couldn't agree more. That was fun. Yes, I agree. But anyway, okay. So my name is Mary. That's when you got to regret. Those teenagers. Professor, I'm so happy to see you. I was hoping that my phone would scare me when you got a sex. I really am. I really am. Because I just met you in that room. Yeah, we haven't seen you for a little bit. Such a surprise. I'm really glad to see you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to see you. I'm like excited that we're back in the room. Oh, this isn't literature I mean, either. I can't tell you how I know how this is all for once to take. Because she said, if you ever do it again, I'm with you. you. And I saw Nancy Cox the other day, and I asked her. Like, I struggled to be on our team. She was like, one year she did it, she said, I had no idea. I'm glad you're here. But y'all did up here. Okay, so. So you're interested in the. I'm so happy to see you. Yeah, I know. It was so good to walk in here and see everybody in person. Yeah, I was. I'm really glad. Here, come here for a second. I'll give you a hug again. 
it's, it's just, oh, you know, and I think the reason is. it's special like, for me is because I know you're teaching. So for me, it's it's not just that you're teaching and what you're teaching matters. And here, I'm glad. No, I know. Pass on when I'm learning. Yes. And next year, they want me to teach a. So I'm teaching my modern world literature class again this year, which I taught two years ago. And then. 